Welcome to the Renovation Church Podcast, Pastor Leonce here. I know that you want to make an investment that matters in your community. You want to change lives. But often the problems of our community seem too big uh, for us to solve alone. And I don't know about you, but at times that has made me feel helpless. The reality, though, is that everyone should be able to make an impactful investment in the lives of the people in their community. And trust me, I understand uh, all of us have experienced a problem that we felt helpless and powerless to solve on our own. But I can tell you that for 12 years, Renovation Church and myself have partnered together as a ministry to solve issues in our community that we could not solve alone. So I'm inviting you today to pray, to assess your opportunities and hopefully led by the Lord to invest so that we can accomplish the great things that God wants to do through us for our partners like Wellspring, uh, for our partners like Promise 686, for Union Church in Lima and several others. I'm inviting you today to make a significant year-end investment. And if you're unclear of that exact investment that you should make, I'd love for you to schedule a meeting with one of our pastors so that we can cast this vision for you. And of course, if you do, you'll make an impact in the lives of your community and you'll know it and you will feel the gift that giving is in a world that takes so much. For more information, visit renovationchurch.com. Looking forward to seeing you in a service very soon. Well, as always, it is a privilege and a, and a joy to be with you today. Uh, if you are here and this is your first time, uh, thank you for sharing your time with this spiritual family. And, and I would say further that if this is your first time, whether you're here in the room or joining us online, uh, if this is your first time with any uh, community of Jesus followers, thank you for taking the chance on this one. Uh, it is important to us that you know that we are glad that you're here uh, and that you know that you can belong in this community before you believe. In fact, uh, you can work out your beliefs uh, while belonging to this community, and that's important for us, for you to know. Uh, with that, open up your Bible, uh, if you have a paper or digital Bible, no matter. Uh, we're going to be in John's Gospel today, chapter 1. We're going to be in John's Gospel, chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 1 through 5 together. Uh, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overtake it. The word of the Lord, and if you would say with me, thanks be to God. Father, we pray now in the name of Jesus that you would make yourself present and powerful in your word. Hide me uh, beneath your hand so that I am not a distraction or a deterrent in any way for the, from the work that you want to do in the hearts of your people today. Would you speak, Lord? Uh, let us hear the call Yahweh together as a community. Let us hear the voice of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. At a time 
when the church was literally at war with itself. Only someone who truly believed in the holiness of Christ could have written a carol that would bring all Christians together to the same place each Christmas, bowing before Christ the Lord. This is how the author of Stories Behind the Best Loved Christmas Songs, Ace Collins, describes the character and passion and faith of the Catholic cleric who is responsible for what some critics call the greatest carol ever written. How the Catholic cleric John Wade came to write, O Come, All Ye Faithful, is a story actually filled with adventure. All right, he was caught in a time when the church was at war with itself. He was a man of God in the middle of a holy war in 1745. At the age of 35, Wade's life was quite literally on the line as strife between the Catholic Church and the Church of England began to swell to an all-time high. Many practicing Catholics had to take their faith underground. Many priests were forced to leave Britain altogether to avoid prison or death. John Wade among them. Wade made his way to France. And while he was there, he was given an important job. Since many Catholic church records were lost during the conflict with England, Wade was tasked with researching and identifying historical church music. He was instructed to carefully record it so that it would be preserved for future generations. Little could he have realized at the time just how profound and long-reaching and valuable his work would be to those future generations. Wade was a calligrapher and a skilled musician. And through his work, he not only saved historical church songs, but he was able to organize and distribute them to Catholic churches throughout Europe. And through beautiful detailed drawings and manuscripts, the priests reintroduced many forgotten songs to the masses. As he reclaimed old pieces, he was inspired to create new ones. And around 1750, I want you to think about that. For anybody who's ever sang the song, Oh, Come All Ye Faithful, around 1750 is when Wade put the finishing touches on a piece of music he entitled Adeste Fidelis, which is in English translated, Oh, Come All Ye Faithful. A decade later, Wade completed and put lyrics to his melody. The song grew in popularity all over the world for 100 years before it finally hit the U.S., it was adopted by many Christian churches here in the U.S. before 1900, and it was at the center of the caroling movement at that time. It was the first recorded in 1905 by the Peerless Quartet at a time when radio had yet to even introduce music to the masses, and thousands of copies of the carol were sold. In a medium where very few Christian songs ever found universal favor, O Come All Ye Faithful, remain the most beloved holiday bop for years. And Wade's genius should be acknowledged. He was living in a time of incredible conflict between varying branches of Christianity. He was forced to leave his home as a sacrifice of faith. He spent long hours trying to preserve church records that others sought to destroy and erase for all of time. And his faith, well, his faith is what carried him through. 
In fact, Wade clearly reveled in his role as a servant of the living God. In every word of O Come All Ye Faithful, the composer's faith is verified and magnified. And so for almost 200 years, O Come All Ye Faithful has been sung in churches of all denominations and in Catholic masses much longer. In the past century, it has been recorded hundreds of times. It has landed on the top 10 record charts three times, and it has been translated into more than 150 languages. What a powerful song. And at the core of it, and this is where we're headed in our time in John today, at the core of this beautiful song is a central tenet of practicing the way of Jesus. The understanding that Jesus is fully man, and Jesus is fully God. Jesus is fully man, and Jesus is fully God. He is the word of the Father incarnated in human frailty. And in fact, you can hear it captured in one of the song's more well-known verses. Yea, Lord, we greet thee, born this happy morning. Jesus, to thee be glory given. Word of the Father, now in flesh appearing. Here's the question I would ask you today. What do you believe about Jesus? What do you believe about him? Is he just a man? Is he just a prophet? Is he just a miracle worker? Or is he something more? That has been the central question for generations. It is the central question of our culture today. Who is Jesus? C.S. Lewis, one of the intellectual giants of the 20th century, and of course, best known as the author of the Chronicles of Narnia. How many of you have opened up a chest of drawers to see if it went somewhere, right? <laughs> it changed our lives. I'm in my grandmother's house. She had all that old furniture covered in plastic and one big... And I'm like, okay. This wall back there. C.S. Lewis said this, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd be insane or else the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else insane or something worse. But let's not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. What C.S. Lewis captures is what the scriptures paint out quite clearly. Jesus is God. He is God come to earth because only God in flesh, listen, only God in flesh could rescue humanity from its self-inflicted demise. We couldn't do it ourselves. And believing Jesus is God is the difference between Christianity and everything else. This is what it hinges on. It is the belief that this was not a mere man, but that this was God himself incarnate. The writer of O Come, All Ye Faithful, just as the author of John's gospel before him, saw it as paramount to sowing seeds of faith in the heart of any willing listener. As we open John's gospel, and I hope you would follow along with me, 
as we open his gospel, we are at the outset of a narrative that, that will reveal to us the most profound mysteries of life itself. It is God's story. It is the glory of his character. It is the nature of his life and his desire to share that life with humanity. It is about God coming to live amongst his creation in order to rescue his creation and the varied responses to his offer of rescue. John doesn't ease in. He plunges into the heart of this revelation immediately, showing us what will be worked out over the course of the entire gospel. His opening in John 1, in the beginning, echoes Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis refers to God's activity at the start of creation. But from John, we learn what was happening before the beginning. We learn of the beginning of the beginning. In the beginning, the word already was, verse 1, before the beginning, outside of space and time in eternity. If we want to understand who Jesus is, John tells us that we must begin there, before the beginning, in the relationship shared between the Father and the Son before the world ever began. Speak of the word, logos. In relation to the beginning, before the beginning, would make sense to both Jewish people and Greek people. Some Greeks thought that the cosmos, the universe, is an ordered place. And what lies behind the universe and orders it is reason, logos. Just in case you didn't know, there is nothing new under the sun. And trying to equivocate and equate God with the universe is not something that was invented by millennials. Okay? The Greeks did the same generations ago trying to find a way to capture the self-expression of God in something that they could personally interpret. For Jewish people, creation took place through God's spoken word. The word is considered God's divine self-expression. To them, God's word is effective. God speaks, things come into being. By his word, God personally relates to his people. Greater than, and, and, and again, follow the thought, greater than an impersonal principle of reason or a universe that burst out of nothing stood the biblical understanding of a personal God with a personal word that gives order to the universe he created. John carefully constructs this first verse to show this personal God and to show the distinctness yet essential oneness of the word Jesus with God. To be with God means that the word is in some way distinct from him and in a personal relationship with him, not just proximate to him. Yet he was also God. There was an identity of being between them. Though these Two truths seem impossible to reconcile. Logically, they are held in Scripture with equal firmness. And here we have the building blocks of what theologians have for generations called the Trinity. Okay? The one true God consists of more than one person. And these persons have always existed and have always related to each other. Now, if you're not yet a follower of the way of Jesus, or maybe you are a Christian, but you just don't want to think on these things. Right? There's three things that Christians avoid. Song of Solomon, Revelation, and the Trinity. Okay? That's, those are the three things we avoid most. Song of Solomon, not till you're older. Revelation, helicopter locusts, 
and the Trinity. I can't get my mind around it, right? Those are the things we avoid. And, and, and so maybe you're not sure what Christians mean by the Trinity. There are a couple of beautiful ways this understanding of God has been expressed. Dr. Ray Ortland, a friend and mentor of mine, uh, writes this. I love the Christian claim that ultimate reality is not cold, dark, outer space. But ultimate reality is a person in community. Bright, radiant, joy. This man can write. This is when you don't feel like you're a writer. Bright, radiant, joyous, with volcanic exuberance. So irrepressible that he created us to share in his joy about who he is. The implications are endless. What Pastor Ray describes for us is the most beautiful mystery of Christian faith and understanding that there is one God eternally existing in three persons, sharing completely a single divine nature, co-equal, co-eternal, one in essence, one in nature, one in power, one in action, one in will. Athanasius, one of the ancient African church fathers, describes God's nature this way. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are not names for different parts of God. Let that sink in. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are not names for different parts of God, okay? But one name for God because three persons exist in God as, as one. They cannot be separate from one another. Each person of the Trinity is understood to have the identical essence or nature, not merely similar natures. Though the word Trinity is found nowhere in the Bible, you need to know that too. Neither is cleanliness is next to godliness, also not in the Bible, Okay, I'm just saying, there's some stuff y'all, you know, we be saying, and, like, you know, we're saying Second Malachi chapter six, cleanliness is next to godliness. No, one, that doesn't exist. Two, it's not in there. Neither is the word the Trinity. But what the word captures is what is scripturally expressed in God's self-revelation of who he is and the perfect community. He shares within himself. Now, this is going to be um, a feeble attempt at an illustration. But I remember sitting with one of my friends years ago. I ended up leading him to faith in Jesus. Uh, he was a part of our church for many years. And this was his hangup. We were sitting at a bar. Don't judge me. That's where all the best ministry happens. And, and we were talking about Christianity. He's like, I just, I can't get my mind around. God being three in one. And again, this is, forgive the feeble illustration. This boundary, and this is what I did for him. I said, this boundary, well, this represents the separation between us and heaven, right? We can't see past it. And what God has done is imagine my one arm is God. And the way that he's chosen to reveal himself is in three persons. It doesn't make it three distinct persons because it's all connected to the same essence, the same nature, the same being. You just see three, but it's really one. He slams his cup down, does this, takes a shot, and says, now I want to follow Jesus. It's one of my favorite stories. It's one of my favorite stories. I, I enjoy altar stories, I do. But a shot of tequila followed by, now I want to follow Jesus, you will never top that, right? I mean, again, it's a feeble illustration. There's another one I could tell you, H2O, one compound, but you see it in water and ice. 
and steam. Do you say that's three different things? No, it's all H2O, right? Now, those are feeble expressions because how can you capture the, the unimaginable grandeur of God in human language? But I hope that it would kind of bring some semblance of understanding that, that this is not some magic trick we're pulling to try to explain why we're not polytheists. But that this is God's self-revelation of his divine person. Understanding that ultimate reality is a person in community is important because it's foundational to the Christian faith. Understanding that ultimate reality is a person in community is equally important because it is the only means by which we will ever understand ourselves or how we were made to relate to God or to one another. We can't understand it beyond that. Now, some have claimed, including the Jehovah's Witnesses today, that the word of God merely identifies Jesus as a God. But scripture and history bears out that the word that John speaks of is the one true God who created all things, and Jesus never gave us that. Jesus never said, I'm one among many. He said, I am he. I and the Father are one. He said it repeatedly, okay? Now, verse three tells us that God, one in three, through Jesus, created all things. All things includes the universe and everything else that exists aside from God. It was created through Jesus. All things were made by him, and what was made was in no way made without him. Just as in Genesis, where everything that came into being did so because of God's spoken word, and just as in Proverbs 3.19 and Proverbs 8.30, where wisdom is personified as the means by which all things exist, so here, God's word is understood to be the personal agent who created everything. That the preexistent Christ Jesus created everything is a common theme in the, in the New Testament. If you want to write some of these down, Paul says that all things were created by him and even for him, and that in him all things hold together. Colossians 1, 16 through 17, the writer of Hebrews speaks of the Son as the one through whom God made the universe, Hebrews 1, 2, which directly refutes the claims of Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses. Revelation presents Jesus as the, quote, amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning, the originator, and the ruler of God's creation, Revelation 3, 14. So verse 3, although it moves us from eternity to creation, we're still dealing with facts hard to comprehend, yes? Because until discoveries made in the 1920s, the Milky Way was thought to be the whole of the universe. And now we realize that there are billions of galaxies. Science is helping us spiritually. Because it silences us before God in wonder and awe that what we see he made. And faith. Well, faith helps us put science in its proper place. Because the universe is incredibly wonderful. It is wonderful. It is, it is, it fascinates me. I love listening to Neil deGrasse Tyson talk about it. And then I pray for him to get saved. It fascinates me. And if the universe itself is so magnificent, so wonderful, so incredible, how much more the one upon whose purpose and power it depends. Hebrews 3.3 3 says this, the builder of the house has greater honor than the house itself. 
Now, again, if you're following along, verse 3 and 4, well, they should actually, the end of verse 3 and verse 4 should actually be read as one sentence, right? As one sentence. We have to remember that when the scriptures were written, they were not divided up by page numbers or chapters or verses. Okay, that's something we did so that Baptists could have Bible sword drills. Okay. In verse 3 and verse 4, what has come into being in him was life. And the life was the light of all people. What has come into being in him, now, now I want you to think about that. What is come, what is, so, so is John saying that, that creation like formed inside of him and then proceeded from him? What has come into being in him was life. And the life was the light of all people. It's not clear whether John is thinking of our essential constitution in these verses or the fact that we've just simply been made in the image of God or of the reflection of Jesus himself in the universe he created or even of a more specific revelation bound up with the coming of Jesus. But it seems in these verses that John is more interested in the source of the light, which is the life of the word, and its purpose, which is directing it toward humanity, than in the mode of its dispersal. Most likely, this reference is to the incarnation, declaring that what took place in the word at his incarnation was the manifestation of life itself. Let me say it again, that what took place in the word at his incarnation is the manifestation of life itself. It is ultimate reality. It's everything. John's allusion to the incarnation would only be evident to those who understood Jesus' identity as revealed in the rest of the gospel. Jesus' life manifests in the incarnation, John says, is our light in this gospel. In John's gospel, light always refers to revelation and salvation that Jesus is and offers. In order to have true life, we need to know God and Jesus is our source of such knowledge. As our light, his life is our guide. He is our wisdom, that which reveals all else to us and enables us to see. Another way to put it is you cannot see reality as reality unless you are looking through the lens of Jesus' light and life. You don't know what's actually going on unless you're looking at the world through his lenses. As our light, he is our life, he is our guide. And then we get to verse 5, which is a masterpiece of planned ambiguity. I mean that. If a Hellenistic Jew, for instance, or even a pagan Greek at that time, read through the opening verses up to this point and had no personal experience of Christianity, he or she might well take verse 5 to refer exclusively to creation. The light was the light of men and the darkness could not overcome it. He or she might take it to refer exclusively to creation with no moral overtones. But light and darkness are not simply opposites. Darkness is nothing other than the absence of light. And at the first creation, darkness was over the surface of the deep, Genesis 1-2, until God said, Genesis 1-3, let there be light. Let there be light. At no other time 
than creation, could it be more appropriately said, the light shines into the darkness. And precisely because John is talking about creation and is not describing a dualistic universe in which light and darkness, goodness and evil are matched opposites, then he can describe the victory of the light. The darkness did not overcome it. But any reader who entered a sustained dialogue with a healthy Christian, yeah, that's right, we need modifiers. And more importantly, any reader who had read through this gospel once and was now rereading it could not fail to see in verse 5 that there is also an anticipation of this light-darkness duality. In other words, the darkness in John is not only the absence of light, it is the presence of evil. The light is not only the revelation bound up with creation, it is the light of salvation. And apart from the light brought by the Messiah, the incarnate word, people will love darkness because their deeds are evil. And when the light shines in, they hate it because they do not want their deeds exposed. That is what John is saying here. In fact, wherever it is true that the light shines in the darkness, it is also true that the darkness has not understood it. And John, the subtle writer that he is, wants his readers to see in the word, Jesus, listen, both the light of creation and the light of redemption, both brought to bear in the fullness of his incarnation. Thus, here at the outset of John's gospel, we have the two most fundamental affirmations about Jesus in all of the gospels. Namely, that he is the presence of God's own life and light. And that he makes, listen, he makes this life and this life available to humanity. In one profound sentence here in verse 5, in one profound sentence, we have the central assertion of this gospel concerning the revelation of Jesus and the salvation he offers. It is from John's unpacking now, as we land this plane, it is from John's unpacking of Jesus' eternality, Jesus' incarnation, and the fulfillment that Jesus is of all God promises that our friend, the Catholic cleric, soaked in the written word, wrote of the incarnate word. Here's words again. Yea, Lord, we greet thee. Born this happy morning. Jesus, to thee be glory given. Word of the Father. Now, in flesh, appearing. This is the good news of the gospel. And if you are here at Water Place, or, or maybe you're joining us online today, and you don't practice the way of Jesus, 
But that was a lot to try and unpack. And I get it. I haven't always been a Christian. I haven't. And I remember that sense of overwhelm as I tried to make sense of what I was hearing. But here's what I invite you to do today, that as you process everything, everything, I want to draw your attention to the one thing that you mustn't miss. Jesus is not just a man. Jesus is not just a prophet. Jesus is not just a miracle worker. Jesus is not a great political strategist trying to overthrow the Roman government. Jesus is God in flesh. Come to earth for the specific purpose of rescuing you and I from sin and death. And giving us abundant life here on earth and eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus is God's word made alive in bodily form so that he could reveal who God is and how God is to humanity so that he could go to the cross in our place so that he could die as a sinner so that we could be called righteous. That's who Jesus is. And as you wrestle with all of the themes in these, it's just five verses. Don't lose track of the main thing. That there is a God who loves you. That he came for you in Jesus. He died for you. He rose from death for you so that you can spend eternity with him. And so to all of us, I ask again, what do you believe about Jesus? What do you believe about it? Because what you believe about Jesus changes everything about your reality. And it is the difference between real faith and whatever version of Western churchianity any person might currently be living in these United States. That's why this message, that's why this beautiful carol matters to us today. You see, it is easy in the seeming mundaneness of faith to forget how earth-shattering and life-altering this truth is for us. And so I implore you today, hold tight to it. If Jesus is God's revealed word and God incarnate on earth, listen, then every other promise God made is true and it belongs to any who believe in him. He is our life. He is our light. And there is no darkness in hell or on earth or in us that can overcome it. None. And so if you're moved today at all, moved even just a little, here's what I would encourage you to do, to take a next step. And I'm going to give you one every time we get together. I'm going to give you something to do because faith without works is dead. Okay. So here's the next step. Spend time this week in silent meditation with John 1, 1 through 5. Just read it through 
over and over again until it becomes a part of you. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. He was in the beginning with God. Let it soak in you. Let it soak in your soul. Let it revive the dead places of your faith. Let it shape the implications of that truth across the scope of your life. Soak in the knowledge that God, listen, God wants to relate to you personally. 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 He wants to. And the word of God tells us that. So spend some time this week. If you've never done silent meditation, let me tell you what you do. If you got children, get up before them or do it after you give them Benadryl and choke them to sleep. <laughs> You'll know soon enough. Get up in the morning. Find your favorite spot in your place. Your favorite spot. Maybe, maybe you're like me. You know, I, it, it wasn't until my brother passed and my, my middle daughter forced me to get a cat and I thank her for it every day that I realized I was a cat person. So me and him sit in the sun. Just let it come in. Find your favorite place in the house. Sit in the sun. Maybe get an app if you like to listen. Dwell is a great option for you to just hit play and have somebody in a nice foreign accent for fun. It sounds so much better than American. Read it to you and read it again and read it again. And do breath prayers. This is meditation. Pick one of those verses and breathe in. In the beginning was the word. And the word was God. And ask God to make it real to you. And see if it doesn't fundamentally change your week. Ask God to build your faith so that you are confident to share what it is that you, the reason for the hope you have with our de-church neighbors, our friends, our family, to share with them who Jesus is and why he matters to their lives. In fact, can you even imagine, can you imagine how much more of God we would experience together if we deepened our belief in who Jesus is and why Jesus matters? We would cultivate the heart of a servant. We would slow to an unhurried life. We would strive to develop life-giving relationships. We would remain committed to reaching one more. We would seek the welfare of our very challenging city. And in short order, we would change this part of the world. I believe that. And I hope you will believe it with me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your incarnate word. Thank you for your written word. Thank you for your rhema word. Thank you for your divine self-expression that consistently calls our hearts to deeper. Would you seal this to us today? Would you would you make this a moment that we are marked off 
in a new iteration of our life and faith so that we might never be the same again. We ask in Jesus' precious name, amen.